The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that the wisdom of man is utter foolishness when it comes to seeing you and knowing you and being saved through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that this morning that we too would become fools, that we might see the glory of of your Son, that we might see the saving grace that he offers, and that we might become wise eternally, understanding your voice, seeing you clearly through your word and by your grace, living in accordance with truth and not lies. In Christ's name, amen. If you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to be looking today at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 5, and you need not panic, it will not be a five-hour sermon, that's a huge chunk, um, but it is something, it is a part of Scripture that by God's grace we will be able to look at. We built last week upon the God's calling and electing and then saving people through grace in Christ, and this week, Paul redirects his attention to the idol of human wisdom. He's in Greece, and so he's dealing with philosophy and, and the ways of man trying to figure out what life is all about, and so he, he's talking to the church at Corinth, who had been thoroughly Corinthianized, the ways of the world had made their way in, and he wants to contrast the wisdom of man with the wisdom of God, which is the gospel of grace, which is a crucified Christ. And so he goes after philosophy and its inability to answer the basic questions of life. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? The only way that you can live a life of purpose, the only way that you can live a life that makes any sense, if you know where you've come from, if you know why you're here and you know where you're going, that there's some direction involved. Origin, purpose, and destiny are questions that every human being must answer. And we all answer them in some way, either well or poorly. Now, if you know philosophy and you know the Greek philosophers, they were not, those philosophies were not effective in answering these questions. And so Paul comes at, he challenges those in Corinth with the wisdom of God, which is the foolishness of Christ, which is a crucified Savior which was utterly foolish to the Jews and to the Greeks at the time. And so this morning, by God's grace, we will become fools in order to become wise. We'll become fools by understanding that the ways of the wisdom of man do not answer these questions. And we'll become wise in seeing that Christ does. The word of God does. God has always answered these questions well. And I want to do that this morning by looking at three things. One, the fool's fool's message. Number two, the fool's calling. And number three, the fool's power. The fool's message the fool's calling, and the fool's power. Verse 18 again. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 18 is a most hated verse outside the church of God. Because it takes all of mankind and it puts us into one of two categories. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And if you spent any time in the context of, of higher academics, that's a hateful teaching because we want to believe that there are many gods and many paths and many ways to be saved. The Bible says there is one God, there is one path, and there's one way, and that's through Christ. The Bible says there's a heaven and there's a hell. Now, that's either real or it's not. If it's not real, then the whole dialogue here becomes futile. But if it is real, that means that, that everybody is either perishing or being saved. We fall into one of two categories. So Paul begins here by saying those who are perishing, the word of the cross, which is the gospel, is moria in the Greek. It means it's foolish, it's folly. In the words of the vernacular by Eleazar, it would be, that's dumb. It's not, it's something that when we hear as an unsaved soul, and if you came to a saving grace later in life, as I did, I remember the first time that I had the gospel preached to me. I thought, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. I mean, I didn't believe in God. I certainly wasn't going to believe in his son. And I wasn't going to believe in a crucified Christ. It was utter tautology. It was foolishness to me. You responded like that because you, if like me, you were blind to the truth. Your ears were perishing ears. Because God, apart from changing our hearts and minds, apart from him revealing these truths to us, they will always be foolishness because we think that if God doesn't show us Christ, we think our way is right. 
Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, the sage said, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, the way is death. Our ways always seem right to us. I mean, aren't we the first to argue our point and our worldview and our philosophy? Because what? We think it's right. And it's either right or it's wrong. So Paul comes here and he calls upon Christ as a crucified Savior, the word of the cross. No longer, he says, listen to the foolish philosophies of men. No longer submit yourself to that, but hear the extraordinary teaching that comes from Christ. In other words, he says, it's the gospel of Christ that answers the questions. Where did you come from? God the creator. Why are you here? To serve and worship him. Where are you going? Well, that all depends. If you're in Christ, if you know Christ, if you've been saved by Christ, then you have eternity with God, with him. If you don't know Christ, then it's eternal separation. It answers the questions for us. But more importantly than that, it actually equips us with real power. The gospel of grace, the word here, the truth, enables us to actually live in accordance with the teachings that the Bible sets forth. We can actually be the people that God has called us to be. For the first time in our lives, we're able to hear and understand and love the word of God and then submit to it and want to submit to it. There's nothing more glorious than when someone says, you know, I've been reading the Bible and I actually believe it and I actually enjoy reading it and I actually want to submit to it. How does that happen? That's a work of grace. That's the Holy Spirit. And it's a glorious thing. I read the entire Bible through before I came to a saving grace and I didn't understand it. I didn't like it. Work of grace. Look at verse 20. Paul does something great here. He calls all mankind into the ring. He says, let's, let's talk about this. He tests the philosophies and theories of all mankind. Verse 20, he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And Paul rightly concludes that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And for millennia now, certainly for centuries, the wisest of mankind have shot arrows at God's holy word, at the truth of his holiness and the sinfulness of man and a crucified Christ. Constantly coming against God's word. Only what? Only to find themselves again and again and again breaking themselves upon the rock who is Christ. Unable to refute the word of God. Why is that? Well, Jesus said in in Matthew 24, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's why. In the Old Testament, Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. So anyone who comes against the word of God, any philosophy, any wisdom that sets itself up against the word of God will utterly fail because the word of God is truth and it will go on forever. G.K. Chesterton was right when he said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. It's been left untried because it's hard. Why is it hard? Because, look again, the folly of what is preached. What is preached? Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Preaching is one of the most foolish things we do. I mean, when I stand up here week after week and I preach the gospel of grace and a crucified Savior, only God will enable you to say, what a fool. What is he talking about? This is true foolishness. But God says in his wisdom, he chose to save people through the cross of Christ, through a broken body and the spilled blood of our Savior, and in no other way. Not through wisdom, not through work, but through that which was preached. And that means, saints, when Jesus came to Thomas in John chapter 15 verse 6 and he said to Thomas I am the way I am the truth and I am the life and no one comes to the father except through me he actually meant it Jesus meant that the only way to go to the father the only way to have God forever is if you come through me and you come through the cross the world does not and cannot equip us save us enable us to have an eternity with the living God. We cannot, you cannot, I cannot, we cannot ascend to God through academics. We cannot ascend to God through good works. We cannot ascend to God through philosophy. I tried that. Some of you tried that, to make your way into the eternal. All of this is borne out in Scripture to be utter foolishness. 
And so God says, I was pleased to save men and women in a most unexpected manner by sending my son and nailing him to a cross. It was problematic for the Jews and the Greeks at the time, just as it is for many of us today. The Jews, because of their cultural moment and their historical tradition, they were relying upon God's mighty works. And we know that through the Old Testament. They had no time for the speculative philosophies of the Greeks. The Jews believed that God would actively reveal himself in our space-time continuum, that he would come in and he would do something supernatural, something miraculous. And that's why, in spite of all the signs and wonders and miracles that Jesus Christ performed in his life, it still wasn't enough. I mean, the, the man, the man uh, he fed the hungry, he healed the sick and the lame, and he cast out demons, he controlled the weather, he walked on water, he raised people from the dead. That's a big deal. He raised people from the dead, and he himself was raised from the dead. Those are all supernatural occurrences. But the Jews came to him in Matthew chapter 12. Listen, Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and following. Some of the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They wanted to see some of the magic. But he answered them, he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You know what he was saying. You know what the sign of Jonah was. Jesus says, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to rise again on the third day, and that is the sign. That's God's greatest sign. That's the greatest miracle. You need nothing else because that is sufficient. This chief sign that he is, in fact, Israel's great Messiah establishing unequivocally what Jesus said, that he is God. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a teacher. He is God. And although they refused to believe their Messiah, that gospel reigns true with us today. It, I, we should understand, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, they believe that if a man is put to death and you hang him on a tree, he is cursed by God. And so there was no way they could believe that the Messiah would be one, killed, because he wasn't supposed to die, and then two, killed in that manner, to be hanged on a tree. That was to be cursed by God, not blessed by God. And this was who? This was the blessed one. This was the blessed one. And so he couldn't die in this manner. So they rejected what their own scriptures taught again and again and again. The Old Testament taught that Christ would come and Christ would suffer and Christ would die. They had to reject it. But the Greeks were no better off. Look at verse 22. It says the Jews demanded signs and the Greeks sought wisdom. The Greeks were proud of their mental gymnastics. They loved the degree to which they could engage in their intellectual prowess to think and reason and process. And the whole teaching of one, the divine God becoming a man, foolishness. The thought that God would redeem people through blood, barbaric. The fact that God would actually redeem man through the blood of his son by crucifying him. I mean, this was just, this was, this was pure hedonistic foolishness, according to the Greek mind. They wanted rational evidence. Right? They wanted rational argumentation. They wanted to be able to work through this in their minds. We as a culture are not much different when it comes to wanting proof. I've heard people say, well, if God would just show me and give me a sign, we sound just like the Jews. And some people say, well, you know what? I need evidence. I need empirical scientific evidence. And so we hang our hat, much like the Greeks or much like the Jews. But the gospel message of crucified Christ was, in verse 23, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. They reject its power. They reject its truth. Because a crucified Christ is the great revelation of God and the hope for man. We will have no other sign than the sign of Jonah. If you're waiting for something else, then you're waiting in vain. The great work of God took place on the cross when Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. Only through a crucified Christ, then, now, and forever, can we know him. In verse 24, he says, To those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And so those who reject the idea of Christ and salvation through his great work, those who reject it are foolish. Those who receive it are not necessarily wise. Notice this. It says, Those 
those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It doesn't say, well, if you know Christ, it's because you're wise. It's saying because the power of God has made you wise. He's revealed it to you because we all start off foolish. We all start off rejecting God, not understanding the way of faith. But Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross, is, it says, the power of God and the wisdom of God that he freely imparts to you through grace. He freely imparts that to you, that you might believe. And the right response, one of the commentators said this, the right response to the believer is that it makes them wise. It makes them holy. It makes them righteous. It makes them blessed. He writes, it does infinitely more than human wisdom could ever conceive, much less accomplish. I've taken a handful of philosophy classes and not one made me more holy. I didn't read, I didn't read Kant and want to love my wife more. I didn't study Descartes and think to myself, how can I, how can I improve the human condition? The gospel of grace has the power to do that. Not just understanding salvation, but how to live lives as God has called us to live. The crucifixion is at the very heart of our faith. It was rejected by Jew, it was rejected by Greek, by Orthodox, and by pagan. But for those whom God calls and saves, the foolishness becomes the ultimate wisdom. Right? The foolishness to man becomes the great truth that changes our lives and empowers us to be a holy people. And so Paul says rightly in verse 25, for the foolishness of God, listen saints, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's the foolish message. Now let's take a look at the fool's calling. God's destroying the wisdom of the wise in verse 19 through the gospel of grace is best illustrated in those whom he calls those who he actually gathers into his church, into his kingdom. If, if we look at it from a worldly standpoint, we would think that God will populate his kingdom with who? I mean, who will be populating the kingdom of God from a worldly perspective? It will be the smartest, the richest, the best looking, the most athletic, the most successful. I mean, if God's going to pick some people to put into his kingdom, both now and forever, it will be these people that are most successful to bring into fellowship with Christ. But the message of the, if the message of the gospel is foolish, then God's selecting is foolish as well in terms of those who he actually picks. Well, who does he pick? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Look with me. He said, For consider your calling, brothers. Now, don't get offended over this. People get so bent out of shape. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. That's a true statement. Especially in the church at Corinth. The church was not populated by the most successful philosophers, politicians, and power brokers at the time. The church, the early church, and the church throughout human history has been populated by the least and the last amongst us. The least educated, the least successful, those who had very little or no power. That's made up the church throughout human history and throughout the world. Why is that? Did the early disciples do some contemporary evangelical study and they say, we're going to have a geographic target group and we're going to go after our focus group will be the least and the last and we'll share the gospel with them? Did they come up with some great marketing strategy? Of course not. What happened? They shared the gospel with whoever would listen. But God chose to redeem and transform the lives of the least and the last in order to shame the wise. James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my, brother, my beloved brothers, he writes, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? Not poor economically, just poor. Poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. Why would God call such a motley crew? I mean, why would he call us? Why would he call us? And if you, if you know yourself and all, you, all, you know you're not all that. You know you're not. I mean, we're not. We're flawed. Radically so in many ways. We know that. So why would he call us? Why would he bring us together? Two reasons from the text. Both are compelling. One is found in verse 27. Paul writes, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. In other words, he picked the least and the last, the weak and those who had no power, in order to bring shame to those who thought that they deserved heaven, that they deserved God, in order to reveal that the things they've latched onto were utterly insignificant in the kingdom of God. 
the kingdom of, in the kingdom of God, he's really not all that concerned about your bank account or your job title. He's not all concerned about the, the big house that you live in or the nice car that you drive. Those things don't matter in God's kingdom. And yet, the foolish in this world who think they are wise are those who have attached their identity and life on all those things. And so what does God do? He says, I'll raise up people. I'll raise up people that you look down upon in order to show you the foolishness of where you've placed your hope and your identity. God shows the foolishness, the foolish and the weak, in order to shame the wise and strong. And he didn't do this out of vengeance. He did it out of mercy. He wasn't being vindictive. I truly believe that God, this was a massive redemptive act. You see, my beloved, before a proud man, and I can speak to this personally, comes to a saving grace in Christ, he always thinks he's good enough for God. I was asked at the age of 19, I didn't believe in God. I was asked, you're going to go to heaven? I said, well, surely there's a God, I'll be in heaven. That's interesting. The proud man believes he deserves God. The proud man believes he deserves heaven. And so, in our, in our culture, in the Western world, this idea of entitlement has actually reached heaven. We're, we don't even claim the right to, you know, to, to, to housing and to fair income. We claim the right to God. We claim the right to ascend to heaven for eternity. We have an entire generation and possibly two that now claim this right. So, by God saving the weak instead, by saving the powerless... He's redeeming that it's not by your birth, it's not by your success, it's not by your education, it's not by who you marry, the children you have. He's, God is saying, it's by my grace that I save anybody. And that humbles everybody. And it levels the playing field for everyone. God's power and sovereign will to save. This revelation, I believe that God uses this teaching of saving the least and the last and the weak um, in order to shame the, the, those who think they're wise and the powerful to the cross, to bring them to the cross, to see Christ, that they might cry out too. But the text gives us another reason. Look at verses 28 and 29. It says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of the God. This smacks of Genesis chapter 1. When God created ex nihilo, when he created out of nothing something, what is God doing here? He's taken the lowly and the despised. He goes to them, he saves them, he brings them into his kingdom, and he makes them glorious. He makes them beautiful. He redeems them. He creates a people for himself. It says in verse 28, God chose even the things that are not. That's a bad translation. I mean, it's the best we can do in the English but essentially what it says is God saved those people that are so lowly, so at the bottom of the social structure that they're not, they're not even worthy of being despised. We treat them as though they do not exist. The lowest of the low. And this is the depth of God's grace that he comes to, to people that are so low in the eyes of man that we don't even despise them anymore. I mean, that's as low as it gets. In order to, in order to, um, to cast disparaging remarks or despise someone or treat someone poorly, you've got to extend some energy. You have to acknowledge them in order to hate them. But if you say that someone does not exist, that is the ultimate hatred. When you deny the existence of somebody, when you shun them and act as though they do not exist at all, this is who God says, I'm saving these people to shame the wise to shame those who treat people as though they're not real, as though they're not, they're not substantive to God and have intrinsic work because they've been created in the image of God. Such a radical act of grace. And he does this, he does all this, that he, he might eliminate in his presence any self-glory. Look at verse, uh, where was I? Go back here. I apologize, this Bible, the writing on this Bible is so small. Thank you, brother. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And then jump down with me here, so that no, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, he says, I'm doing this great work with those that you look down upon, the lowly and despised and the things that are not, so that when you come before God, you're not going to boast in yourself. You're not going to say, well, 
Of course God chose me. I'm bright. Or of course he chose me. I'm, I, I'm, I'm successful. I'm well-educated. And, and my family, you're not going to do that. There's going to be no boasting in self. It will only be boasting in the great work of God. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1.17 to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And then he says, amen, let it be so. Shaming the sin of pride so that no flesh should glory in his presence. The King James renders that no flesh. I love that in verse 29, that there's humility in the presence of God. And that's right. And so God saves the lowly and the despised and the things that are not so that those of us who think, well, I ought to be saved, he gives us a radical reorientation and he shifts the paradigm so we can see clearly that no one deserves to be saved, that no one is righteous before God. No, not one. As Paul said in Romans chapter 3, no one does good. No, not even one does good. Look at verses 30 and 31. He says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. You know what that means? If you're in Christ, it's because of God you're in Christ. If you have faith, it's because God, you have faith. You don't, you don't believe in God. You don't have saving grace in Christ because you're smarter or because you were raised in a Christian home or because you went to church. You don't have faith in God because you've done a series of good works. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, it's because he did this work in you. Paul makes that as clear as it can be here. Jesus Christ said in John 6, 44, John chapter 6, verse 44, something so compelling. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In the Greek, that word is halkuo, and it literally means drags. I'll reread it. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags him, and I will raise him up on that day. People don't run to God. People don't run into heaven. We're running away from God. But God comes and he says, I'm going to make you mine. You're going to be my son. You're going to be my daughter. And I'm going to bring you into my kingdom forever. And so we are blessed. Look at verse 30. Look how we are blessed. We're blessed with wisdom. Why? Well, if you know God through Christ, then you know Christ. If you know Christ, you know the word. You know the logos. You know the redeemer. It means that you have the knowledge of God through Christ. Because in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt. We're told in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, Jesus said, no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And if you know Christ, that means that God has revealed himself to you through him. That's how you can sing about this majestic God. And we can understand his holiness and his righteousness. We can get an understanding that this God truly is the creator of the universe. And that he made us in his image. And that it was good when he made us. And that we fell from his grace. We can understand all these things through the wisdom Christ gives us. But it also says in verse 30, look again. It says, you'll be blessed with righteousness. Why? Because Jesus Christ has satisfied the righteous requirements of the law. He, the Bible says that Christ is our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Why? so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he satisfied the righteous requirements of the law. And the law says that you want to, there are two ways to get to heaven. One, be perfect. That's a problem. Number two, Jesus Christ. And so when Christ went to the cross, he satisfied the righteous requirements for us. And in so doing, on the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, we come before God. When all mankind is judged before this holy God. You will stand, if you stand in Christ, you stand in his righteousness because he imparts that to you. It's an extraordinary thing. Not only does he impart it to you, the Bible says that Jesus Christ will be your advocate. He's your lawyer. What a great lawyer to have. And he will stand before the God, the Father, and he will say, no, this one belongs to me. I have saved this one. I have cleansed this one. I have covered this one with, with my blood. This one belongs to us. You'll have wisdom, you'll have righteousness, you'll have sanctification. Why? The Bible says that if you know Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And that means daily the Holy Spirit will reveal to you and grow you and sanctify you into the image of Christ. One last thing that he says in verse 30, you'll have redemption. Redemption from what? 
Redemption from guilt, redemption from sin, redemption from death, redemption from hell, redemption from the grave. Paul's talking here about a final deliverance. That when all is said and done, we will be delivered from the sin of this world and the sin that we perpetuate. We'll be delivered from it by God's grace. That at some point in time, when Christ comes again in glory, there will be a reuniting of your body and your soul, and you will be redeemed, you'll be restored, you'll be bought back by the blood of Christ. And all these blessings of wisdom and sanctification and redemption come through this union with God through Jesus Christ. And no other way, there's no other way to have any of these blessings apart from a crucified Savior. Why? So that when you stand before God, he says, let, no one bo- let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So you will say, I'm here because of Christ. I've been saved because of Christ. I'm able to live my life in such a way that brings God honor and glory because of Christ. I know where I come from because of Christ. I know I'm here because of Christ. And I know where I'm going because of Christ. What does that mean? That means all glory and honor and praise forever and ever will be to Christ. Why? He's God. He's God. That's the way it should be. So we have the fool's message. We have the fool's calling. Are you still with me? Are you awake? Do we need to get up and do some jumping jacks or push-ups? You don't want to do that anyway, right? Okay. Some of you would say that's sacrilegious to do in a church. I doubt it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the fool's power. You have the message, you have the calling, and now we need to talk about some power. Verses 1 and 2, Paul says, And when and I, when I came to you, brothers, when he went to the church at Corinth the first time to plant the church, 51, 52 AD, he said, When I came to you, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's fantastic. If you've ever taken a rhetoric class or a speech and communication class, the teacher will teach you how to communicate effectively, and that's good. You'll learn about having good eye contact with your audience. You'll learn how to have certain hand gestures. You'll learn, actually, how to articulate words in a particular order, words to use. You'll learn how to speak in an articulate manner. You will learn argumentation. You'll learn logic. All the ways to communicate something effectively. Paul comes along here. This is the great apostle who absolutely had all these skills. And he said, I'm going to set all this stuff aside. I'm going to put aside my, my skill set as a, a rhetorician. And I'm going to come to you proclaiming the testimony of God, period. Not with lofty speech and lofty wisdom. In other words, he said, I'm not going to, go, I'm not going to buy into the way of the world. I'm not going to come to you and communicate as a philosopher or politician or power broker or salesman. He says, I'm going to come to you as a witness. Like I would sit on a stand in a court of law and I'm going to testify to God and Christ. And so he says, I came to you. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He refused to engage in all the trappings that can hook people. And he simply and plainly spoke the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This testimony that Christ brought forth. Look at verse 2. I mean, that Paul brought forth. Verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't go to the church at Corinth and, and talk about Christ as an example or as a prophet or as a revolutionary, which he was, all of those. He didn't talk about Christ as a philosopher or teacher or miracle worker, and he was all of those as well. He said, I'm going to go. His goal was to glorify God in seeing the people of Corinth repent and believe. So what should the message be if we want to communicate in such a way that people will repent and believe? It has to be a crucified Christ. It has to be the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that is the message of the gospel, and that's the message of hope. And that's why he was there. It wasn't to rise in their ranks as a great teacher or philosopher. It was to bring glory to God. They would have, had he talked of Christ as a philosopher, or as a teacher, or as a miracle worker, it would have grabbed their minds, and they would have started to engage in the reasoning skills. But he wanted to go at their heart. He wanted to hit their sin-filled heart of stone and crack it wide open. And so he, he brings Christ. 
But not just Christ, he brings a crucified Christ. Why a crucified Christ? Why? The gospel message of a crucified Christ has the power to melt the hardest hearts. You know that. The hardest heart, the heart that is the most proud and the most hard towards God can be broken utterly by the gospel of Christ that God would do such an amazing work to save sinners like us. We know the Bible teaches if there was any hope for mankind, it would have to come through the sacrifice of the Son. And it revealed several things, one of which is the great love that God has for man. Secondly, the great magnitude of our sin, that in order for anyone to be saved, Christ had to die on a Roman cross in order for anyone to be saved. That is the depth of our sin, and that is the majesty of God, and that's how much he loves us, that he would do this, showing us how desperate our state is before him, that Christ would indeed be a propitiation for our sins, that he would appease the wrath of a holy God by standing in our place and dying for our sins. I believe, saints, the reason we struggle with this so much is because it's so offensive. A crucified Christ is offensive because a crucified Christ says, one, we're all sinners. Two, we're pretty bad sinners. And number three, that we need to be reconciled to God. That's why, we, that's why the message is so offensive. I don't want to believe, one, I'm a sinner. I, too, don't want to believe I'm such a bad sinner I need to be redeemed from hell. And three, I don't want to think that I have to be redeemed by God. I want to be able to say to myself, I'm not that bad. If I do some good works, God will be okay. We want to believe that basically we're good. We want to believe that. We want to believe that, that we have a good standing in God, with God, no matter what, by default, just by being born, we have a good standing with God. I was fascinated. My students, the number of my, most of my students were professing atheists, even though they really didn't understand their worldview. They were professing atheists. And I'd always ask them, I said, well, well if there is a God, are you going to go to heaven? I said, well, of course. Of course I'll go to heaven. Well, why wouldn't I? I don't believe in a God, but if there is a God, I'm sure I'm okay with him. Never mind they're living their entire lives in rebellion against him. Never mind they're rejecting him, his son, and the work of the kingdom. Never mind they're living in total rebellion against his laws and his teachings. Never mind, never mind them hating him so much they say he does not exist. The greatest hatred of all is to deny the existence of someone who is real. Never mind that. They believe that if God is real, that surely they would be in. My beloved, the Bible teaches and human history confirms that mankind has been at war with God since the fall in the garden. The Bible says we're at enmity with him. And human history reveals this. Our movements and our teachings and our philosophies are contrary to the word of God. I mean, this is not the means by which we, we evaluate our lives or run countries or teach our students It's not by the word of God. It's by the philosophies of men. Always in contradiction to it. Our own century, I guess I should say the last century now, confirms this truth of this rebellion against God. More people in the 20th century than at any other time in human history actually believe that God was not real. More people in human history during the 20th century That means that they rendered God, the creator of the universe, the source of all life. They didn't just render him lowly and despised, as we saw here in 28. They rendered him as that who is not, as someone who does not exist. And as I said already, that is the ultimate hatred. The greatest relational destruction is to deny the existence of someone who is real. That's why, saints, if you've ever been shunned by somebody... It's the most painful. The worst thing that someone can do to you is to shun you because when they shun you, they say, you're not even worthy of me coming against you. You're not even worthy of me deriding you or hitting you. You're so low that I'm going to act as you don't exist. And this is what our culture has done with God. We say he doesn't exist. No greater form of hatred. No greater form of shunning. Paul preached a Christ crucified to magnify the power of God to save men like me and you. We all start here. And he knew that if anyone believed, if anyone actually believed 
in the saving grace of Christ, if anyone repented of their sins and turned to God and put their faith and their hope and trust in Christ and not their own works, Paul knew that if anybody did this, it would not be because of his wisdom or his rhetoric or the powerfulness of his speech. It would be because of the power of God. Look at verses 2 and 3. In chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit, of the Spirit and of power. In other words, Paul jettisoned any type of philosophy, rhetoric, marketing strategy to try to hook people. There's nothing worse than when, when Christians or churches try to hook people with fancy marketing strategies or techniques. It's the worst. Why? Well, not only because it's usually bad anyway, but most importantly, we are to be here and our faith is to be substantiated on the power of God, on the work of Christ. That's why we're to be here. God transforming the hearts and minds. Paul knew this. If anybody had any hope, it would have to be God doing a great work. God revealing his holiness, our sinfulness, and our need to be saved. God would have to do that work. In Corinth, in this country, and across the world throughout human history, God would have to do a work if he was going to come to a people and reveal his holiness and reveal their sin and cause them to repent and believe and follow Christ in love and obedience. All this, Paul understood, would be the greatest testimony to the reality of God. Because no one believes and no one turns apart from God doing a magic work of intervening in a supernatural way. Not human wisdom or rhetoric, not slick marketing or worldly philosophies. They don't work. They don't work. But by the power of God, God brings conviction, repentance, obedience, and love and grace. And he does all this, look at verse 5, to firmly establish you Look at verse 5. Not on your works and not on your wisdom, but upon his power. He does this, he says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The Apostle Paul, and we know this from his writings, and we know this from his education, he could have decimated any philosophical argument the Greeks brought before him. He could have utterly destroyed them. It would have been easy for Paul. Paul had the answers to the questions they were striving for and are still striving for today. Where did I come from? Why am I here and where am I going? Paul had these answers. Clearly delineated in the scriptures. Paul could have easily have shown the superiority of Christianity not only in its reasonableness, but in its application and power. He could have shown that and compared it to the paganism of the day. Paul could have taken the divine origins of our faith and he could have dealt with the prophecy or he could have done with the, dealt with the miracles or he could have dealt with the historical testimony of a, of a crucified, risen Christ. All of these great weight and argumentation. Paul could have done that. He could have shown how ridiculous the ceremonies of the pagan religions were at that time. But he chose none of that because he knew that had he gone down that path, he would have been appealing to the mind rather than the heart. He would have been arguing reason and rationale rather than dealing with the problem of sin. And that's our problem. It's not wisdom. It's not reason. It's not works. It's sin. And so he came and he brought a crucified Christ to them, the very foundation of our faith. It's not worldly wisdom. It's not, it's not philosophy. It's not works. It is God revealing himself through Christ. Nothing else has saving power. Nothing else has the power to redeem us from ourselves. Nothing, and I mean nothing, not your spouse, children, not your parents, parents, not your children, not your education, not the job that you have, not the income that you make, not the house that you own. Your identity outside of Christ will be one of perishing. But in Christ, there is life and there is hope. Any faith system based upon human reasoning is susceptible to being overturned by a more compelling argument. And there are lots of compelling arguments. But the system of Christianity is based upon the power of God through a crucified Christ, which cannot ever be overturned. And that's where your, that's where your foundation is in. It's on the rock of Christ. And so we glory in that. A few closing thoughts. Thoughts. 
this. Number one, and then I'll close. All mankind at this very moment, according to this text and several other passages in Scripture, stands in one of two categories, either perishing or being saved. If you believe in a heaven and hell, then that's a, a reasonable conclusion. Certainly the Scriptures teach to that. The gospel story of a crucified Christ will seem foolish to most people. So don't be shocked when you share the truth of God when people respond in a way that is unfavorable to you. They may laugh, they may scoff, they may deride you, they may smack you. I've had people spit on me, they may do that. The Bible says it's foolishness to them, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so share the gospel because you have no idea who God's going to redeem. And knowing this, we ought not be discouraged. We ought not be discouraged in sharing the gospel. And we ought not share a partial gospel. Don't go to someone that says, Jesus loves you, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. When you talk to people about God, talk about the majesty of God and the holiness of God. And talk about the depth of our sin. And talk about the need to be saved. And then point to Christ. Say, here's Christ. Here's the crucified Savior. Here's our hope. And point to him. And if you do, you're sharing a full gospel. That's why Paul said, when I went to Corinth, I went to know and preach nothing but a crucified Christ, that they might know him. And then rely upon God to do the work. We're always so anxious about sharing the gospel. Share the gospel. God does the work. Just be a faithful witness, as Paul was. Give a faithful testimony. Number one. Number two, the primary message that must go out from this church, from our lips, and every true church throughout the world, every true church, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the message of hope. That's the message of salvation. That means slick marketing schemes, fancy ways of saying things or doing things. These things are not, should not be our focus. They should be jettisoned for a crucified Savior. I, I believe that one of the reasons we don't talk about a crucified Christ is because that's offensive. But if I can give you a really nice track that will show you that we're having a raffle here on a, a month from now and we're going to give away a motorcycle, you know, you know, hey, I like that idea. That's not offensive. That's appealing. But talking about a crucified Christ or your sin or the need to be saved, that's offensive. So we stay away from that. Other means we use, apologetics, logic, history, prophecy, wisdom. Those are all, should all be secondary. They should be used, but they should be secondary. Secondary to the gospel of grace. The uh, commentator Hodges writes this on it. Listen, he says, whatever other means are used must be subordinate and auxiliary, designed to remove obstacles and to gain access for the truth to the mind, just as the ground is cleared of weeds in order to prepare it for the precious seed, which is the gospel. So if you use logic or history or prophecy or wisdom, make sure you're just pulling weeds that the gospel can get in. And whatever you do, don't use wisdom or history or prophecy without the gospel. That's utterly tragic. Number three, lastly, we must remember that the success of the gospel going out of redeeming people is on God and not you or me or the church. We are to be faithful messengers, to testify. But it means that you don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to take a speech and communication class. In fact, I would encourage you not to. You don't have to be the wisest of people in order to share the gospel of grace. What do you have to know? You have to know God through Christ. You have to know that God is holy and that you are sinful and that you need a Savior and that Savior is Jesus. You have to know that. And then you can say that. A five-year-old can say that. And it doesn't have to be eloquent. It doesn't have to be marketed well. It doesn't have to have proper syntax or logic or rhetoric and argumentation. The simpler, the better. A crucified Christ. This is the message to go from your lips, from this church, to friends, to family, and it's to go in weakness and humility. If you're self-confident about the gospel, then you're not approaching it as Paul did. Paul came in weakness and humility and brokenness. And when we're sharing the gospel with someone who does not know Christ, there should be weakness and humility and brokenness as well. I'm so offended at times when someone brings the gospel with haughtiness and pride. There's no place for that at the cross. But if you love someone, and if you really love someone, and you believe the word of God, and you believe that God is holy, 
and you believe that we will all stand before the judgment seat one day, if you love someone, then you'll share a crucified Christ with them in humility, in love. You won't be worried about how smooth your message is. It's the content that will matter. Knowing this, that the word of God never returns void. The Bible promises us that. It never returns void. And so God calls you to be faithful, to testify, to preach, to teach, to share the gospel message of a crucified Christ. That is a responsibility of his children. We can't be negligent in this and think that our standing with God, that we're okay in our relationship with the Savior. He says, you must go out. We start in Jerusalem, and then we go to Judea, and we go where? To the very ends of the earth, and that's where we are right now. So we should be active in sharing the gospel here at the ends of the earth to anyone in our mission field. Paul said in verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we have not been faithful in this teaching. You have brought a message to us of a crucified Savior that oftentimes we're embarrassed to share. We don't think has all the answers, and so we grab on to slick rhetoric and philosophy. You call us to be fools as well. You call us to take the fool's message, embrace the fool's calling, and the power that you give us in Christ to go out and testify to this broken world of who your son is, of the great work that he did on the cross, that out of your great love for us that you would actually send Christ to die in our place, that he would do that great work that we cannot do and would not do. I I thank you, Father, that he came and he lived that perfect life that we were supposed to live. And then he went to the cross and he died that death that we were supposed to die. And then he imparts to us grace. He imparts to us righteousness. He imparts to us holiness. This is the good news. This is the great gospel message that has gone throughout the world for centuries. I pray we be part of that great message, that we would live in accordance with it by the power of your Holy Spirit and we would share it with others anyone who's willing to listen, that you might be glorified in the redemption of all mankind. In your name, amen.